Hello, welcome to the East London Radio Private Lives podcast. This is Paul Robinson, and on today's show, we wind the clock back to a pivotal moment in music history, the Woodstock Festival at Bethel, New York in 1969 with Henry Gross and Al Stewart, two world-class singer-songwriters who were both there. Private Lives with Paul Robinson on East London Radio. How was music changed by that seminal festival, the Glastonbury of its day, and what is its legacy? So, to start, Al Stewart has released 20 or so albums in his career and continues to tour, and he talked to me about why he still loves to play live. I like getting on a stage and playing songs. It's, um, I've been doing it all my life, you know. And how important is that audience feedback? I mean, when you get someone who's an adoring audience, it must really make you think, yeah, it's it worth doing. It was worth getting up this morning to do this. Well, it's bad, better than having them throw things at you. I mean, <laughs> Has that happened? <laughs> oh, in the beginning, all, all kinds of things happened, yeah. I mean, I, you know, when you first start out, nobody knows who you are and they don't care. Yes, I literally, uh, I, I, can't, I, I opened for Electric Light Orchestra in, um, in Toronto, um, when I was first starting out, and um, they were three hours late, their, their van had a bus had broken down, and the and the, the audience were completely angry. I mean, they were throwing things, and the promoter, instead of going out and introducing me, pushed me onto the stage. <laughs> so he was standing behind me because he didn't want bottles hitting him. I had to go out in front of this. It was the noisiest crowd you've ever heard in your life. And they basically booed all the way through. I sang three or four songs, and they just yelled all the, all the way through it. Um, and and as I said, well, that's an experience. You know, it can't get any worse than that, and it never did. <laughs> I hope that Jeff Lynne apologised to you for that. You know, I I had dinner with Jeff Lynne um, many many years later, and um, he no, I did I don't think he knew that it happened. <laughs> that's funny. Well, let's go right back to the beginning, Al. And um, you know, you started in music, and it, apparently, you know, Bob Dylan was one of the greatest inspirations for you. Yeah, sure. I mean, <clears throat> when I when I left school, I wanted to be Dwayne Eddy. I think. I mean, I, I wanted to be a, a rock guitar player or Hank Marvin, you know. And uh, so my focus was totally on, you know, like making loud noises on electric guitars. And um, I Bob Dylan was a, a revelation because because everything was about the lyrics. And um, when I was in school, I'd written sort of abstract nonsense poetry. I, mean, I was a big fan of Lewis Carroll, Edward Lear, people like that. And I thought, well, my God, I mean, maybe this thing can be done through words. You know, maybe I don't have to be, because by then Eric Clapton and Jimmy Page and Jeff Beck had come along, and Jimi Hendrix. I mean, that was the end for me. I sold my electric guitar. <laughs> I you thought, sold it? Yeah, I thought, I can never do this. I mean, I, I, I looked at what they were doing, and I thought, I just can't do that. I, I, if I live to be 3,000. Um, I'll never be able to play the guitar like that. I might end up playing rhythm guitar in some heavy metal band or something, but that's the best I could aspire to. But then Dylan comes along, and I thought, well, you can maybe do this th through uh, lyric writing. And, and I thought, well, I know how to do that. <laughs> I just didn't know there was a market for it. And uh, so I became a, a lyric writer. We'll talk more about your songwriting later because you're a prolific songwriter and you have some very strong views about songs and what songs should be written. But let's go back to those very early days when I think you shared a flat with Paul Simon. I did. Now, there's an education. <laughs> really? I was in the was next... he a messy flatmate? No, no, no. I mean, I, I, he was a great songwriter. And, and uh, literally, I was in the next room when he was writing all these songs. And um, he thought I was, well, I was just the kid, you know, because I was younger. And so, you know, basically he was very dismissive. Um, but at the same time, when you've written a song, you need to 
play it to someone. I was the only person around. So Paul would emerge and, and look despairingly around for someone. And, and the only person there was me. So I got to hear all of these songs. <laughs> so you heard many of these classics, possibly for the first time. Yeah, yeah, I think I did. Can yeah. you think of some examples? Uh, Richard Corey was the one I liked the most. Uh, he wrote that and he came out and played it to me and it was so great. And the day before, he'd written a song called Homeward Bound, or at least he finished it. He began it on a, in a railway station, I think. And um, But he finished it, Homeward Bound and came out and I was I thought, yeah, that's quite nice. And then he, kept, he wrote Richard Corey the next day. And I said, that is fantastic. That's the hit. That thing you wrote yesterday, throw that one away because Richard Corey is going to be the hit. You said throw away Homeward Bound. <laughs> I think I did. <laughs> And of course, well, we know what happened. Yeah, well, I was wrong. I, it, it started a long career of getting everything wrong about pop, popular music. Paul Robinson with the greatest guests on Private Lives on East London Radio. So, Al, you're, you're sharing this flat with Paul Simon. At what point did you think I could really be a musician and my songs could actually you know, communicate and I could be, I could be a professional musician? Um, well, I was already playing in folk clubs. I had a residency at Bunge's Coffee Bar. Um, in in London. London. Yeah, London. And I was already, and I, then I became the compare at a club called Les Cousins that everyone called Les Cousins. <laughs> and um, so my job was to put people on and off stage. And, uh, you know, so I was sort of beginning to work my way into the folk scene. And of course, I'd heard Bob Dylan's records and I had those and I'd seen Paul writing songs. And then I met Bert Jans and, and I thought, uh, wow, you know, this isn't rocket science. Maybe I can do this. You know? <laughs> so I just began writing songs and I never stopped. You know. And who else did you bring on? I mean, Bert Jans is a great name. Who else was brought on by Al Stewart in those early days at Lake Cousin? Oh, everybody. Uh, there was a, a guy called Steve Adams, uh, whose uh, father ran a Greek restaurant until he changed his name to Cat Stevens. <laughs> Cat Stevens? Yeah, I know. He, wouldn't, he made this record called I Love My Dog. And uh, the record company changed his name to Cat Stevens. And he came down and I knew him pretty well. And um, he had this little record, a 45. And he said, I've made a record. I said, oh, great, show it to him. And he said, I can't show it to you. Because <laughs> he was so embarrassed that they changed his name to Cat Stevens. Uh, who else Who else do we put on? Well, Paul, Paul played there, of course. And um, Bert Jans, John Ramborn. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the whole sea of people. Van Morrison, I think. Really? Jimi wow. Hendrix was there one night. The man who you weren't going to emulate. Yeah, <laughs> couldn't emulate. So uh, let's move on to your first album then, Bedsitter Images, in 1967. Was this uh, an easy birth? No, it was, it was weird. Um, it had an orchestra on it, and it, that was because Judy Collins had made a record with, uh, with an orchestra on. And uh, the record company said, well, let's have an orchestra. Um, you've got to pay for it. <laughs> and um, if if I'd done it a year earlier, it would have been just acoustic guitar. And if I'd done it a year later, it would have been a rock band. But it, it was that weird middle period, you know, where, where they wanted an orchestra. And my memory of it is that, um, oh, is that I spent the next three years paying for it, I think. <laughs> so it's your own money. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I was deeply in debt after that record came out. So what happened next? Um, after I paid it off. After you paid off the debt, yes. Um, I, I made, well, I made a record called Love Chronicles. And it was the title song was 18 minutes long. And um, it became the Melody Maker Folk LP of the Year and uh, got me out of the clubs and into colleges. I started playing every university imaginable. And it sold a lot of records. And uh, <laughs> we, were, we were off and running. 
Fantastic. 18 minutes is a long track. I mean, obviously that wouldn't have got radio airplay, I guess, because 18 minutes, I mean, Queen wouldn't get played at six minutes, so 18 minutes is probably almost impossible. No, no, it, it, um, it, no, it didn't get played, no, but it didn't matter. Because so how did, you, how did you promote the album? You see it was a big success, but how was the promotion carried out? I just word of mouth. Just word of mouth. And, and the Melody Maker, too, was was very pop- a popular uh, newspaper. They kept writing about me, and I think the word got around. Then the third album came out, and you had a number of shorter songs on there. Yes, I had one that was 15 seconds long. <laughs> oh, well, that's the antithesis of 18 minutes, isn't it? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I thought I didn't want to be trapped into the, you know, into the three-minute thing. Um, and I thought, just as an experiment, you know, how about writing a, a very long song and a very short song, to, just to see if we can get away from the predictable, you know. And then let's move on to modern times, because that produced your first hit, which was Carol. I, I don't think it was a hit, but it's well, not, it was a minor hit. Yeah, nice of you to say something. It probably made number nine hundred and sixty-three or something. I think it made the top seventy-five. <laughs> Did it? You know, I've never known that. <laughs> I think it, I think it made the top seventy-five. So, but that that must have been a bit of a turning point because you were looking for some commercial success. I'm sure you were. Well, everybody everybody would like to have people buy their records. Um, Carol, yeah, it was weird because it, um, it, the, the album crept into the top 30. This is modern times. Yeah, both here and in America, which was the real eye-opener. I had found it very hard to even get records released in America, and then all of a sudden that record was um, number 28 or something, and so I was able to go over and tour. And what was it like touring in the U.S. compared to here? Uh, well, uh, I was uh, the first tour I opened for Linda Ronstadt, and um, they didn't like me at all. <laughs> a bit like ELO then. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, was, I had these songs. I had a song about the German invasion of Russia in World War Two, And I had another 10-minute song about the prophecies of Nostradamus. And uh, Linda was singing country and western. And, and her audience were basically people in cowboy hats. And they didn't know what I was singing about. So the songs were just too complex. Yeah, they thought I was a communist or something. I mean, they, I was singing. The whole point, actually, was that the Roads to Moscow was based on a Solzhenitsyn novel. And it was a, an anti-communist song. <laughs> but, but, of course, you know, like in the, in the southern states of America, I mean, that was totally lost, you know. So did they invite you back? Well, Linda never did, but um, <laughs> but but then we uh, you know then we had some more records that sold some more, and uh, and it, it it started to make sense. It was like the fog cleared, and they said, okay, that's what it's all about. But at, at first, it was uh, who is that and what's he doing, and will he stop? You know. <laughs> well, you didn't stop, and you kept going, and and you kept going, and along came Year of the Cat, which of course is now you know one of your seminal albums, much loved, much played. And that produced some real, real hits. Yes, it did. Um, it was very odd, very, very odd. <laughs> Why odd, though, Al? Well, I never thought I was a singles artist. I mean, I always thought I was an album artist. And You're uh, the Cat all of a sudden was in the top ten in America. You know, that's unheard of. I mean, I, I, I had no idea how it had happened. You know, so for a very brief period of time, we were uh, kind of like I was a pseudo pop star, and I, I thought, well, this is wrong. I'm a folk singer. You know. <laughs> Podcast Radio. This is Private Lives. I'm Paul Robinson. My guest is Al Stewart. So, Year of the Cat produced um, other success too. I mean, On the Border was also another successful song. Yes. Um, it's the weirdest thing, again, because uh, the song was written about the decline and fall of the British Empire. It was, uh, oh, uh, a song about um, revolution in Africa, and it was a song about the Basque separatist movement. Um, I thought it had no commercial appeal whatsoever. And um, people started playing it. 
Um, I don't know why. Maybe it was the Spanish guitar they liked. <laughs> if they'd been listening to the lyrics, I, I, I mean, why would that be on the radio? You know. Did it, did it mystify you then, you know, why some songs were successful and some were not? I mean, you, you, there clearly doesn't seem to be a recipe, but you did hit a winning streak here. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 if I knew, I, I would have done it again. I, mean, I have no idea. <laughs> now, when, you, when you write songs, you've been quoted as saying, you know, you don't want to write a song that's been written before. There's no point. And that's a you know, very clear point of view. So when you're writing, you're writing what you believe is something you want to communicate. Yeah, and something which has never been done before. Uh, I mean, there have been 10 songs at least uh, in the top 10 called Hold On. All, 10, 10 Hold Ons that have all been hits. If I was cynical, I would write a song called Hold On. Because <laughs> it might be a hit, but you won't, I guess. Oh, I never will. Never no. will. No. And do you think people do that then? They just do that because they know that's going to be successful? There is a formula people do um, write about. Uh, you know, basically, I think it's a difference between style and content. Uh, to me... Uh, Content. Um, well, style is you know, basically okay. This is a reggae song. This is a disco song. This is heavy metal. This is country and western. That's all style, because the song is probably either "I Love You, Baby" or "You've Left and I Feel So Sad." You know, um, so there's not much content. It's all style. Content would be if you're writing about the construction of the uh, Leningrad. Moscow canal system in Russia in the 1930s. That's content. <laughs> and you do content now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, style is, is, it doesn't do much for me, you know. That album then produced a, another successful album. You were on a very strong commercial role at this point. Yes, um, it was probably uh, just luck. I mean, it wasn't intended to go that way, but uh, uh, then I met Clive Davis, who uh, was the head of a record label. And um, he said, I don't care what you do with the rest of it, but I want a, I want a, a mid-tempo ballad with a saxophone on it. <laughs> that was the recipe, right? <laughs> and it's the only time in my life um, that I've actually conformed to anything commercial. Why did you do that for Clive then? He was so persuasive or you thought, oh, maybe I better just do this? Well, he gave me a million dollars. Oh, that helps. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, I thought I'd better at least try to please this person, you know. And and actually, I did it twice. I did um, Time Passages, and there was another song on the record called Song on the Radio. And I was actually making fun of Clive. Um, he said, write something that can be played on the radio. So I thought, well, I'll do this spoof. You know, I, I, you're on my mind like a song on the radio. And, and I thought I thought this was me being humorous, and the damn thing became another hit. <laughs> and I swore after that I was never going to do it again, you know. But Clive was happy and he got the million dollars. We sold a million copies, so I guess everyone was happy, you know. East London Radio on Podcast Radio. To find out more, visit eastlondonradio.org.uk. The next album was um, 24 Carats. And I, I love this album because this is something I played a lot when I was a, a trainee DJ. I mean, this album was a, a great album. Um, well, if you say so. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that's good. I'm, I'm glad someone liked it. Um, now, this album um, wasn't as successful. And I think probably um, after this album, there, you know, there was a slight decline in terms of the sales. But when you, when you wrote this, what, what was in, going through your mind? Um, it depends. Uh, well, the first track was Running Man. And that was about chasing Nazis around South America. I, I write these very seriously. T- yeah, of course. It seriously. Was. Yeah, well, there was uh, the hunt for Mengler, I think. And uh, you know, I, I do tend to write these historical things. Um, so that was on my mind. And uh, Robin Williamson of the Incredible String Band um, had written a, a, 
a hundred page book on, on um, a Scottish warrior king called Merlin. And so I wrote a song called Merlin's Time because I wanted to see if I could condense a hundred pages into three minutes. <laughs> so I, it's basically a precy of Robin's book. A hundred pages into three minutes. So, I mean, you're serious. Yeah, yeah. That's how it came about, Yeah, because I knew him very well. Okay. And, uh, yeah. Well, how long is the song? It's not. It's not a massively long song, is it? I no, it's three minutes. I think. It might be minutes. two, two and a half or something. Yeah. Okay, that was a good job then. Really, that was a good policy. Yeah. yeah. Well, I read it, and I thought, can I, can I, you know, condense this right down to a couple of minutes? And uh, so I did. It, it, writing is very easy. I mean, you know, I could. Could you write, say that? I could write a song about the ceiling in the studio right now if you wanted. I mean, I, you know, ceiling. You could rhyme it with Darjeeling. I mean, the, the, all of this stuff is very natural and easy to me. But it's a talent. I mean, you say it's easy, but it's not easy. Well, I can't do anything else. I mean, I can rhyme things and I can read a wine list, and and that's it. The, these are the two things that I know how to do. And by sheer chance, they're the only two things I need for my, for my job. <laughs> now, did you not write an album called Down in the Cellar? Yes, I did. About wine? Yes, because I know about wine. So, so what's on that album? Just describe it. <laughs> oh, lots of songs about wine. Um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's weird. In the 80s, I, I kind of gave up music for a while. I thought I was going to um, start a vineyard. And um, I, basically, I spent most of, most of the 80s studying wine. And I, the French government gave me a couple of diplomas. I, I think I'm a master councillor of uh, Bordeaux or something oh, like that. But the vineyard never happened, Al. No, the well, vineyard never happened. And Thank I, goodness, I, I guess. I, I thought, well, I'll go back to being a folk singer again. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and does the wine happen before the gig or after the gig? Oh, um, I, I think both. I think. <laughs> <laughs> you do love your wine. Now, right. let's go back talking about touring a bit. And I think you were at the very, very first Glastonbury. So yes. how did you get to know the Evises and, and get onto that bill um i wasn't on the bill you weren't on the bill no, well, you no, gave no. cash um no 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 the, um a friend of mine keith christmas was was on the bill and i went with him and then he dragged me up on stage so there there is a picture floating around of me on stage at glastonbury but i was never booked there <laughs> which i i don't think they know because they had me back for the 25th anniversary and then for the 40th anniversary on the grounds that I'd been there for the first one. So I don't think they, they you know, the people, the organisers actually know that I was never booked. I, I just ended up on stage anyway. Yeah, who needs to know? But <laughs> Glastonbury's grown. I mean, in 1970, it was quite a small yeah, festival. There were, there were other festivals which are much bigger mm -hmm. than Glastonbury. But yeah. I mean, it's become a, a massive event. I mean, how did it feel doing those anniversaries, 25 and 40 years? Oh, it's fun. You know, it's, a, it's nice to play to a big crowd. And did the crowd know your songs? Because obviously a lot of the crowd are, are young and you've been doing this quite a few years now. Oh, they seem to, you know, I went down OK. Al Stewart there, who despite his mid-Atlantic accent is British, talking about Woodstock. Our second guest, fellow singer-songwriter Henry Gross, is a close friend of the Beach Boys. He's also American and now resident in Los Angeles, but originally from Brooklyn, New York. I asked him how he got into music. Most of the people my age, you know, I was born in 1951, didn't really get into music till the early 60s, you know, they, when they were 10, 11, 12 or something like that. I had an older sister and I had a cousin who was six years older who used to give us her 45. So I actually got the Elvis records. I remember in 1957, we had Elvis's greatest hits. I was about six years old and just wore it out. And really, it was it was that record up and doo-wop. And then later on, you know, we remember those little, you probably had the same thing in England. We had these little transistor radios the size of your, your hand. And, and I would go to sleep with this. 
transistor radio. And on some nights in, in, in Brooklyn, where I grew up, you could actually get shows from other cities like Chicago. We actually got um, radio from, I remember there was a show called by a guy called Brother Al from Haywood, California, which is outside of Brooklyn. I didn't know that till I played a, a show uh, near there recently, uh, a couple of years ago, and saw the sign for Haywood. And went, so that's where it is. Uh, Brother Al was a faith healer that used to heal people on the radio. They sent them money. <laughs> they, they'd send him $5 and he'd get them out of their wheelchairs on the radio. And it actually but, worked clearly. The $5 is money well spent. Yeah. Yes. He would say, send me $5 and I will pray for you. You know, it was okay. a beautiful thing. Yeah. But it was a great bracket. But the, but the amazing thing was he played all these great records by Mahalia Jackson and James Cleveland and all these great songs by Thomas Dorsey. And so I heard this stuff and I was singing along with them you know and with the little stair stepping you know like when little richard would go hey 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 and be able to step down the notes that's called stair stepping which of course they do to ad nauseum now but um back then it was you know no one was doing it and my mom walked by the room while i was singing my bedroom while i was walking while i was singing along rather with with one of those tracks and freaked that i could sing it and that was the end of it after that. And then it was, you know. You were, you were in trouble then or your mum thought, no, it's inevitable my son's going to be a rock and roller? Oh, she, well, she didn't know if it was going to be a rock and roller, but she damn well knew I could sing. So, <laughs> so that once she, once she got her teeth into that, she started teaching me how to do it properly yeah. and really got a hold of me and, and, uh, and totally encouraged me to the um, uh, distress of my father, who, of course, had big plans for me to be the the next great heart surgeon, but, uh, or pharmacist, which you clearly weren't going to be either. No, I, oh, well, no, no, there, there, there's in my house, I have a big, a picture, a word, it says retail. And then there's a line through it in the circle. <laughs> no retail. <laughs> you know? thou, that's the, that's the 11th commandment. Thou shall not participate in retail. In retail. It's a pretty good commandment, I think. So you wore out the Elvis Presley album, but uh, you quite early on joined a band, Sha Na Na. Well, we formed it actually. What happened was I was a student at Brooklyn college and I was playing in a band with um, two guys, one of whom I went to high school with named Joe Whitkin. And, and there was another guy called Elliot Kahn. And Elliot and Joe were roommates at Columbia University. Uh, you know, I was in Brooklyn College. And we had a group that, that, that we were performing with in Greenwich Village and all these coffee houses and things like that. And, you know, like wherever, whatever kind of nightclubs or bagel places we could get into, whatever, wherever we could sing, we would go. And they were in this thing called the Kingsman. The Columbia Kingsmen, which was like the Yale Whiff and Poofs. It was one of these, you know, singing groups, in, you know, in social club singing groups. And, and they, they used to do performances and they sang, you know, a few songs, whatever traditional songs. And at one of these shows, they sang Little Darlin by the Diamonds. And there were about 200 kids there listening and they just went nuts. So the older brother of one of them, a guy called George Leonard, witnessed this and had a brainstorm. You know, you. You grease your hair, you wear 50-style clothes, you put three guys up front in gold lamé suits and do a concert of all doo-wop and rock and roll songs. So they did, they rehearsed it and they booked, they learned a bunch of songs and they, and they booked it as uh, the first East Coast, Coast Grease Festival. Okay. And also, they called, and they called it Grease Under the Stars also. And they, and they did a performance on the steps of Low Library, which is like in the center of the quadrangle at Columbia University in uh, you know upper manhattan and they thought 
you know, 200 people came. Maybe the world would get out. Maybe they get five, 600 people would come. And, you know, but it was a beautiful night. And about 5,000 people showed up. The whole place was a madhouse. I went just wow. as a witness because I was in a group with two of the guys. They said, this could be like really funny. So come on down. And for me personally, I was always in my own life as an artist trying to uh, be part Elvis Presley in my mind and in my warped mind and and as if that were possible and also to be part Tom Lira if you remember him because I love comedy yep. and you know and so I, I always wanted to try and cross in my mind that a perfect Henry Gross song would be a combination of Jailhouse Rock and the Vatican Rag so <laughs> so or even Werner von Braun <laughs> okay so, so so for me um, I, the, the, the comedy element of what they were going to do, I thought was the timing was perfect because it was in the face of psychedelia. So I went and watched and the, the, the response was like Beatlemania. And, inst- and, and, the, and of course, the next morning uh, they asked me to join uh, because they needed somebody who could really play and sing. And so I joined and, you know, together with the uh, help of. Uh, our manager Ed Goodgold, who was also at Columbia University, uh, Ed Goodgold and his uh, the manager of Shanana and his friend Dan Karlinski actually created the trivia phase. It, you remember trivia, the books and all that yeah, more exactly. trivia. Well, they actually wrote the books and and did that, and uh, you know so th- so they they contributed and together we created this love letter to the 1950s. We called Shanana believing that the background vocals to get a job were this is the silhouettes right this yeah you are correct it was get a job by the silhouettes and so we whether right or wrong and generally these things were wrong but we did manage after we were famously shanana we did manage to get a hold of a lyric sheet uh and and the lyric sheet was sha da da oh but you didn't change (laughs) your name though no, of course not. No. But of course, the lyric sheet could have been wrong. Could have been, yeah. Because because it might Smudge have been just a, copy, a copyist listening to the record who got it wrong. And I, and I wish I had that sheet music. I've been trying to find it on eBay for years, <laughs> just to have the laugh. History is written by the victors, and so <laughs> the group was successful. And here we and I stayed with it, I guess, for the better part of a year. Uh, although. Um, Early on, we played the Woodstock Festival, and for me personally, uh, I had known Jimi Hendrix from before. We, um, some of the guys met him at Woodstock. I had known him earlier. We had a mutual friend, a guy that sat next to me in high school, who actually did a record. He was very good friends with Jimi. His name was Velvet Turner. What a great name. He, yeah, Velvet. And Velvet actually looked like Jimi. I mean, and Velvet was a brilliant guy. I mean, he was a great artist. He sat next to me in the mixed chorus in Midwood High School, and he would draw people in the class or the, you know, the, the conductor, and they, they looked like photographs. I mean, this guy was really talented. And so he wound up friends with Jimi Hendrix. He's no longer with us, Velvet. Uh, after Jimi passed away, he, actually, he, he did an album, which you can find online. But he introduced me to Jimi years before in Greenwich Village, and we ended up sitting up all night one night. Uh, in, I, I don't know if it was Jimmy's apartment or someone else's, but Jimmy had a guitar, maybe it was his apartment on Bleecker Street, which, or wherever, whatever street it was, and we hung out till about 8, 9 in the morning. And wow. uh, it, was, it was great fun. And then I, you know... I bet there were some I stories left. told and some stuff smoked in that meeting. Oh, definitely, definitely. So when I, when I met, when Shana Na, one of our first, after, after the Greece Festival... 
when I joined the band, the first show that I played with them was at a club in New York, which was the club in, in Manhattan called the Steve. It was Steve Paul's The Scene. People call it the Steve Paul Scene. The actual name was Steve Paul's The Scene. And Steve Paul was the manager of Johnny Winter and later Edgar Winter. And he had this club on 46th Street. But Steve Paul was obviously a hippie and uh, wasn't uh, giving his tithe to the uh, the local um, uh, connected men, <laughs> as it were. Yes. Uh, the polite you know, way of putting it, yes. He did not, you know, he did not understand that you could not run a club in, in New York City without uh, looking after certain people. Your, certain people. Yeah. And so they, you know, anyway, so the club, we ended up playing there two or three times and, and, and eventually were there the night that they, there were fights and stink bombs and they came in and busted the place up. But that's a whole other story. But the first night that we played there. Everybody, I mean, Eric Clapton was there, Jimi Hendrix was there, uh, Rick Derringer. We we performed our co-bill at the Steve Paul scene. One night was Slim Harpo, uh, the great Slim Harpo, who mm. wrote King Bee and, uh, you know, had the big hit on Baby Scratch My Back. And, and of course, um, we played with uh, also with Dr. John and the Night Tripper, Mac Rebinac's first issue of, you know, of of being dr john which yeah. was phenomenal i mean they, they, what a great band and mac was playing guitar then not piano he was playing a three oh, okay and it was amazing so we were playing with all these acts and we became the band of the moment because all these guys loved the 50s music and we were the only ones doing it and so everybody turned up in fact at at uh when they did the concert for george i i was supposed to play with joe brown and his his and you know as an add-on to his band because i was touring with him at that time opening shows for joe's tour and uh i ended up not playing it was a nothing to do with me it was some politics henley politics whatever it was i'm not exactly sure but uh eric clapton came over to me and said how much he loved he remembered me and he remembered how much he loved sean on you know you're listening to podcast radio. Now let's talk about Woodstock because you were the youngest person I think ever to play Woodstock in 1969. Yeah, I was. I was 18. It was Jimmy, I believe, that got us on the Woodstock Festival. Oh, okay. So, so, and I had known him from before. So when we, when I saw him, you know, at, at the at the Steve Paul scene, we knew each other, and he was really, you know, kind of glad to, you know, we, we kind of rekindled a little bit of whatever there was. I wouldn't say I was a great friend of his, but I saw him again. We were going to play on Sunday at the Woodstock Festival, and we were an add-on band. We weren't in the ads. Nobody knew who we were. And uh, we had played the Fillmore East and torn it up. We had played the Fillmore West and torn it up. Right. And then I believe Jimmy leaned on Mike Lang to add us to the show. And, and you know, you, how could you say no to Jimmy Hendrix? So Jimmy, Jimmy got you on the bill then, effectively. I believe he did. And we yeah. went on right before he did. But any, you know, and he refused. They wanted him to go on earlier and end the festival because it was, you know, such a rain disaster. Mm. Uh, but he wouldn't do it. He wanted all the acts to go on. But we waited till the rain stopped. Okay. But anyway, we drove all night, Saturday night, and, and I got there at nine o'clock in the morning, uh, Sunday morning, to the Holiday Inn, which is where everyone, well, we weren't, we didn't have rooms, but that's where the acts were staying. And the first person I saw when I walked into the lobby of the Holiday Inn was Jimi Hendrix. I hung out with him all morning drinking Jack Daniels. And what was and, he like? And, I mean, obviously, look, you know, Hendrix is someone who, you know, obviously died far too young. It's hard to think what he might be doing now if he was alive. What was he actually like? 
I won't take credit for being his best friend, if you know what I mean, but I knew him a little bit. Yeah. And I certainly spent a great deal of time with him, you know, at least two hours, just he and myself on the morning, you know, of the Woodstock Festival. And I found him as I as I did when we when, when we spent at least that uh, at least an hour and a half of the Steve Paul scene again, just the two of us in a dressing room. I found him to be really smart, really eloquent and a really sweet guy. Right. I mean, there was there was that if you thought you, you know, you were more clever than him you were wrong he was really super bright and this guy had played you know he played guitar for joey d and the starlighters he had been a little richards band i mean this guy this guy knew i didn't know those ropes he did you know he was he had been a paratrooper in the army in the 82nd airborne and uh and had actually hurt his ankle and gotten out of you know doing that but he he was a paratrooper one you know so when when they took me in a helicopter and tilted the chopper so that we could see the half million people down below. We went up for like a, in 10 seconds. I'd never been in a helicopter. They're going to take us to the stage. And I was just, I wasn't with anyone else in the Shana. It was just some people I didn't know in the helicopter. But they wanted to get us, they wanted to have us available near the stage so they could put us on any time they wanted and basically get rid of us, you know? And <laughs> yeah. so, so, so I went up in this helicopter. They tilted it. And a couple of people almost fell out because the door was wide open. And so they, everybody kind of freaked me. The guy just took us right back where we started from. So I went back in the hotel and Jimmy laughed when I told him what happened. Because first of all, I was drunk. And second of all, uh, I was, you know, really freaked out. And he thought it was funny because he told me about his being a paratrooper and hurting his foot. Anyway, then they got a car for me. So they're going to drive me from the hotel in Fernwood, New York, to the uh, to the stage, which should have probably taken, you know, 10 minutes 20 minutes but instead it took at least an hour because there were people stuck all over the car because just as we started to drive at about a half a mile an hour jerry garcia got in the car next to me oh okay and of course now jerry jerry um saw how that i was absolutely gonzoed (laughs) and so he he got me stoned on some stuff that i described uh then as anesthesia and okay. still do. So now I certainly would have bragged that I spent the entire day of the woods of Sunday when it rained all that, you know, that rain out time with holding court with Jimi Hendrix in the backstage. That's something that I would have been happy to broadcast to anyone I met and many of those that I that I hadn't yet met. But I never did because between, as I say, uh, Jimmy's hooch and Jerry's hemp, I was hallucinating. I. Uh, was backstage with him, but didn't know it till years later when a guy who played bass in my first band when I was 13 was doing security backstage. We reconnected years and years later, must have been 20 years later after the festival, maybe more. And he told me that I spent the whole day with Jerry Garcia and that everybody was sitting at our tent, coming to our table. And, you know, we were holding court and he was introducing me to everybody like we were buddies. And I, I didn't, I don't, so they, the line on Woodstock is, if you remember Woodstock, you really, you weren't really there. And it well, really was true well, for you. Folks, that was the case. I was there. <laughs> the hooch and the hemp, they got the better of you. After sleeping on the, the back of a, of, a, of a rented truck on the metal grating for an hour or two, we were pretty well beat to death by Monday morning, 7 o'clock when we went on. And the results, um, you know, we played really fast and really crazy. And most of the guys were out of tune. They were exhausted. Yeah, and I can't vouch, 
when I was at the festival, I don't think I saw any of the other Shannon guys till we were just about ready to go on. I, I, you know, I didn't spend any time with them, so I can't vouch for their um, condition at seven in the morning, Monday morning. But I would venture a guess <laughs> that they had been to the pharmacy uh, themselves. Private Lives with Paul Robinson. You, you leave um, Shanana and you become a solo artist. So why that decision? I watched Jimi Hendrix, and I'll never forget this, uh, playing the Star Spangled Banner from about 10 feet away, at, you know, or 20 feet away at Woodstock. And uh, because he went on right after we got off. And I thought to myself, this guy, this wonderful man is doing music only he can make. And I need to make music only I can make. And I knew inside of me at that moment I was, I was you know, that, that I was out of the base. See, Sean and I was a lot of fun, but it, it, it could have been any 12 guys that were singing and dancing. I mean, not, maybe not. I mean, there was a certain charm to the fact that it was mostly a college glee club, you know. Um, because the, a lot of some of these guys, I, I, a couple of the guys in the band, I wonder if they knew that, that little Richard had cut those Pat Boone songs first. I don't know. But, but you know, I was kind of a rock and old rock and roller already. I was a big fan of doo-wop and rock and roll. And so it was fun to be in. And when, when we would go and shock audiences, I thought it was a riot. But when I remember when we started playing in colleges and the kids started showing up, the girls in poodle skirts and the guys with the greased hair, it was like being in the Rocky Horror Show, you know, that years later, you know, that kind of thing. And it was really going to become a kitschy thing for me. I wanted to, at that point in time, it was not an unrealistic goal to imagine that you would be able to write songs and get a record deal. And, you know, uh, I just, people would say to me, well, why did you leave a band like that? It was, you know, world famous band. And I said, well, I was kind of like that uh, Wiley Coyote in the cartoons, if you ever saw those cartoons. Yeah, absolutely. He runs off the cliff, and his feet are spinning, and he doesn't fall. And he, when he looks down, he falls. And I find this true of life. Just don't look down, and you won't fall. It's very true. But you did sign a record deal with ABC Dunhill Records, and you started doing some session work, I think, for Tommy West and Terry Cashman. And I think you worked on the Jim Croce album, I Got a Name. Yeah, the first session I ever did. I went to see, I remember I was very young, and I went to see uh, Tommy Mottola, right. the famous Tommy Mottola, you know, Executive, manager of Hall yes. and Oates, yes. Carey and all that. Um, and, and I went to see him when he was working at Chapel Music as a publisher. He was, a, you know, a song plugger. Yeah. And I, somebody set me up where I could, I went up there and I played him a half a dozen songs. And of course, being, not knowing anything, I, I brought a 12-string guitar and a six-string guitar and I took the subway, you know, these two giant heavy cases and I turned up and I played him some songs and, and Tommy Mottola, I mean, don't underestimate, people underestimate that guy. He really knew songs and he sat down and told me this could be good, but you need to do this and you need to do that. He really gave me a little education on songwriting. Impressive. And, and it was great. And then he said to me, he said, but you know, you play the guitar really well. He said, well, you ever, you ever think you want to play on a record? And I said, yeah. And he sent me over to Jeff Barry who had a studio I'll never forget on 52nd Street on top of Bill Hong's Chinese restaurant. Hmm. He and Ellie Greenwich had a studio. And, and he had me play on a record. And I'm trying to think of the name of the artist. It was a Canadian artist. And I played on this. It was a, it was a version of um, not uh, Baby I Love You, the Phil Spector, Ron Etz record. Oh, right. And I'm trying to think of the name of the artist. It was Andy Kim, it was. And I played about, I don't know, six guitar tracks 
and then I heard the record came out, you know, and, and it was a, it was number one in Canada. So that was the first thing I ever played on. And uh, then, of course, Cashman and West used me on working at the Car Wash Blues, Five Short Minutes of Lovin', uh, Judy Collins recorded a song of mine called Everybody Works in China, and I played guitar on that. And I did a lot of, I did, you know, I played on uh, Michael Kamen. You remember from the New York Rock and Roll Ensemble? Yes, the yes. great Michael Kamen. Wonderful man. He used to use me to play on a lot of records he was producing in New York. So I can't remember. One was called a group called Rosie. I mean, there was a bunch of albums he had me play on. And I did, you know, whenever I was possible, I would get these sessions. I was very happy to get them. And, uh, you know, I hope I did well for them. But I enjoyed doing it and uh, probably not thinking of half of the ones I did. Paul Robinson on Private Lives. Let's talk about your first album then. Uh, it had several regional hits on there uh, and a few covers as well, I think. Well, the very first album that I did on ABC Dunhill did not do much at all. The only thing it boasted was Jim Keltner on the drums and, uh, you know, Ma- Max Bennett from the L.A. Express, the great Jerry McGee, who is in his 80s now. We're still friends. He plays in the, He's played in the Ventures the last 30 or 40 years. Uh, he's still in the Ventures. Uh, they toured in Japan every summer and over, and over there in the Far East. But um, so there was it was a great band. Paul Harris played piano on the record. Paul Harris played on Against the Wind. Bob Seeger's Against the Wind. But the record didn't do much. The A&M record, the, which was also called Henry Gross, the first of my two A&M records, it did very well. And Simone was a pretty big regional hit. Uh, uh, really, it, it went to number one in quite a few cities. Uh, Come On, Say It was a big single. Uh, not as big as Simone. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of album tracks that got a lot of, uh, there was a song called Skin King that was huge in the in the Mid-South of the United States, in the Memphis, Tennessee area. You know, that part of the country was just huge. And so, you know, it, it was starting, I was starting to get somewhat of a following. But, th- but those songs were, you know, Skin King was huge. Um, and then when Plug Me Into Something came out, well, you know, like I just played in Jackson, Tennessee, and the audience knew they were singing along with every word to every song. So it was those records were very well known back then. Let's skip forward to 1976. And I think the first time, you know, I apologize. The first time I heard of you, Henry, was when I heard Shannon on the radio. And this is um, basically about Carl Wilson's dog who passed away. Yes. Well, Carl, I, I became friendly. I started touring with the Beach Boys in about 1973 two or something and um well maybe 73 i can't maybe it was 73 anyway i became friendly with carl wilson right away um you know i could tell you a million anecdotes about well tell us one tell us one carl wilson anecdote please well i'll tell you uh, well this would be well uh, there's the story of shannon which i could tell you of the song but a great anecdote was the first time i played with the beach boys was the was at the university of new hampshire and I, and I remember Ricky Fatar and Blondie Chapin were in the band at that time, and they had an, a live album out, the Beach Boys in Concert with those guys. And, it's, it was a, and I was a huge Beach Boys fan, and I, it was like a dream come true to play with them. And Carl loved my show and came into my dressing room and introduced himself like he needed to. And we kind of became friends, and I went into his dress. He says, well, come on in our dressing room. So I went to the Beach Boys dressing room, and there was Carl with this huge tuning fork tuning up all the guitars because he had a great ear Mm -hmm. so he was tuning everybody's guitars and yelling at everybody to shut up because he couldn't hear and i said carl what are you doing man you're in the beach boys don't you know there are tuning machines he had never seen this con c-o-n-n strobo tuner which we had in shanana we had one of the first ones so i had one on the road you know so i could tune up easily 
you know, with my band, everybody could tune their guitars and we'd be right in tune when we went out. Well, I brought him in my dressing room and showed him this guitar tuner and he went nuts and brought it into the, carried it into the Beach Boys dressing room and showed them all. And they all stood around this tuning machine like like the like the apes in a tarzan movie when the plane crashes that are around the group this is all the members of the beach boys everyone who's around there so brian and mike love yeah. and the whole the well, whole guy brian wasn't brian brian wasn't there mike love was there dennis was there al was there and carl and uh i believe bruce johnson was there so this is like the holy the, grail then to, to these guys it was like it was unbelievable now the next gig i did with them was like two or three nights later and there must have been four of those strobe tuners lined up in the dressing room. <laughs> it was great. No, so that was that was my first anecdotal story because you know it was just when I when I met Carl and he was a lovely guy. I mean, you you have no idea, a really warm-hearted guy. And we also bonded because Carl was, as I knew him over the years, was the, was the caretaker of his mom as as she got older, Audrey, and and who was great. And, and and I was a caretaker of my mom. We had a lot in common, and we were very, you know, very friendly. And the first time uh, he invited me, when I was in California doing some TV show, he invited me to lunch at his house. And it was a fabulous house. It was on Coldwater Canyon, uh, just down the street from the Beverly Hills Hotel. It was a right. beautiful home. I've driven down there. I know it, yes. Yeah, and it was beautiful, just a beautiful street. And uh, I believe it was 1901 Coldwater, if I'm correct. Wow. But anyway... He, he was he was lovely and he had this beautiful lunch I, I think he had a cook or something or somebody made but but his two husky dogs jumped up and knocked the food all this food over and and, and just ate it all <laughs> got into it and Carl was so nice he couldn't stop apologizing and I said don't worry about it I have a crazy Irish setter at home named Shannon and I've seen this performance many times. And when I said that, he got really quiet. And he said, you know, Henry, I had a dog named Shannon that was hit by a car only about a month ago and killed. And his dog was named Shannon. Now, all the stories have it that his dog was an Irish setter. That's not the case. His dog was a Samoyed. My dog was an Irish setter. Oh. Although some people in the Beach Boys clan, like his mom, Carl's mom said that he had the Irish setter. Other people claim the Irish setter was Al Jardines. So um, any, in, in any event, Carl had a dog named Shannon, and I had an Irish setter named Shannon. And at that point in my life, you know, I had all my grandparents, and I was very fortunate. My parents were alive. My grandparents were alive. And, and so, you know, the, the idea of losing someone you loved like that was kind of you know, as much as it was real, it, I never experienced it. And Carl talking about losing his dog like that, I, I could only think of my dog, Shannon. And so, uh, you know, I was sitting with Shannon when I got back from L.A. on, on, the, on the bed in, in my apartment in, in Queens in, in New York. And uh, the song just kind of fell out. You know, it was funny because I, was I was living in a building with a lot of uh, Latin people, you know, Spanish people. And they, they play, music is blasting day and night. And that's fine, but through the ceiling of my apartment, you would hear like this, boop, 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 boop. you know, the bass would just, you could, it was very difficult to write songs because there was this bass coming down. Very difficult to do anything, so, I'd have thought, with that sort right. of noise, yeah. So, so I, I got a record 
which you may remember, it was called the in, the Environments. Right. Record. It was it was an Environments record, and it was uh, you know it was it was of the ocean, of the ultimate seashore, and if you put a recording on that ran for about thirty minutes, the side of the record, and it was just the sounds of the surf, and it actually cools down the room, and and you're on the beach, so I just sat there and wrote Shannon in about 15 minutes, 10, 15 minutes. There in were 15 almost no minutes, you wrote that beautiful song in 15 minutes. Yeah, it just kind of fell oh. out of me. And I sent it to Carl. I remember at that time, the, the, uh, the recording equipment I had at home was this was the size of a shoebox. It was a Sony uh, tape rec- like cassette recorder. And it was about the size. It had a big speaker in it. And I sang the song into the, into, just as I, after I wrote it into the cassette machine. And uh, the dog, my Shannon, barked at the end of it. And I thought it was really cute. So I mailed it to Carl. I thought, what a great song for them to do, because I knew they were going to do an album. Well, it turned out that album was 15 big ones, and Brian returned and had all these tunes. And so they didn't, you know, of course, you weren't going to get an outside cut on a Beach Boys record anyway. I was dreaming. So I recorded it, and I never heard from Carl. And uh, I saw him a while later after Shannon, my Shannon, was a huge hit. And, and, I saw him at a rehearsal they were doing in Los Angeles at Studio Instrument Rentals, where I was rehearsing with um, my band for uh, some dates. And uh, he came over to me and he said in that great California accent, he says, Henry, I heard your song on the radio and it sounded so much better than that tape you sent me. And I had a laugh. Paul Robinson with the greatest guests on Private Lives. Let, let's fast forward a bit, Henry, because uh, you've had so many anecdotes. I want to talk a bit about Joe Brown. Uh, and you came to the UK uh, in 2016, actually, only a few years ago, to tour with Joe Brown, who's a, a long, long-time friend of yours, isn't he? Yeah, I met him. I met him. Uh, I'm trying to think. I, I guess I met. Did I meet him through Roger Cook? Roger Cook is one of my dearest old friends. You know, Rod, of, of Greenway Cook. Yeah. You know, Roger's written more hits. Uh, than anybody you'll ever find anywhere. And I write with Rod. I've been writing with Roger since 1987 and uh, actually 86. And, and we've written uh, umpteen songs together. And, and he, you know, there's always uh, co-writes with Roger Cook on every record I do. I like to have at least one, hopefully two uh, songs. And we try and write at least these days, at least a song or two a year. Cause I split my time between Nashville and Florida and Naples and Florida. So uh, you know, whenever I'm here, I try and get with Roger. And we're, so I, I, I guess I met Joe Brown through him. And Joe is a funny guy. He likes jokes like I do. Right. I mean, Joe, Joe and I, it was a battle of the bands of jokes, uh, you know, of, of terrible jokes. And Joe has more than, you know, and, and so through Joe, I would get all the great British jokes. And I could kill Joe because he didn't know all the American jokes. Fantastic. And so although my taste goes, runs to the bawdier than Joe's. When you were on tour with Joe, didn't is it not true that you played some of his songs and he played some of your songs? That must have been quite something. Yeah, Joe played my song "Lucky Me." Okay, from uh, how did he from do? One Hit Wanderer. How did he do? He did a, a very different version. He hmm. played on ukulele. It was terrific. And you know, uh, of course, I sang on all of Joe's stuff. You know, with him, we did them all together. And then I'd sing Shannon. I did Evergreen from "Plug Me Into Something," which is a song that Joe loved. So he and I did a. We sang everything kind of like the Everly Brothers. You know, okay. we did because we both loved Don and Phil. And so 
we uh you know we try to we try to do a show like that it was, you know, i actually encouraged him to do it it was uh, and his manager john taylor because joe is a funny guy i mean you know I, and i wouldn't be talking out of line to say this i mean look joe's a, a wonderful entertainer everyone knows that but he's always had a band and he's always as much as he you know has of course, confident in his abilities as an entertainer, I think he never really felt comfortable. I never, he always feels like, well, you know, he's not like a singer singer or he's not this or that, you know, and people, artists tend to look at the negative in what they do in a certain way and, and they get insecure. All artists are to a degree insecure. And I would just look at Joe and I said, man, you, you, you know, you don't even need a guitar on stage. You don't even need a band. You just go, you can go out there and just talk for two hours. Yeah, he's sort of an all-round night. entertainer, isn't he? He's just fun. Yeah. You know? yeah. And so I tried to, because I did this show, I, you know, in my life it was different. My career didn't, you know, it, it kind of slowed down. And I could know, for the most part, every now and then, I, you know, people give me a great gig. I have, I, you know, I, I find good players and we do a band gig when it's, when they absolutely require it. Otherwise... For the last, you know, 30 years, I've been touring as a solo artist and and I just, you know, I've I've written songs um, that don't really even require a guitar. I mean, if I say to you, the, uh, Joe sang this song, Lucky Me, the waitress asks me if I'm famous. I say no, but I'm hungry. She says the eggs are cold, the toast is burnt, the bacon's mostly fat. And I say, lucky me. I like it like that. You know, you don't really yeah. need a band. to. Mm. You don't need a band to do it, you know. No. I mean, I have a, I could, if I told you, I saw a man eating fire, another one walking the high wire. I saw an honest politician, some dude with x-ray vision. But the most amazing thing I'd ever, I've ever seen, even better than that centerfold in Playboy magazine, was the night you picked up the check. Atheists began to genuflect. The earth stood still, the sea was parted, love came to the brokenhearted, nature's balance seemed to be upset the night you picked up the check. You know, everybody knows that guy. You know, I, I, I submit to people, to my audience, that if you were in a cave in Tora Bora with this, in Osama bin Laden, there was always one guy who wouldn't pay for the hummus. You know, <laughs> we all know that guy. <laughs> we all know that guy. So, <laughs> so yeah, so it's, you know, if you're writing about things that people have experienced and understand, which basically Joe's conversation on stage is like that. You know, I, I think if I did anything, if I've done anything good, the best thing, if because I, I love Joe Brown, and if I could do some, did something good for him as, as, as a dear friend, it would be that I think Joe knows now that the band, no matter how great they are, and he has a great band for this tour coming up. I mean, he's got these, you know, he's got Phil Capaldi back on drums, and he's got some crackerjack musicians coming. And, but the fact is, that's not, that's not the main course. Those guys are the garnish. Yeah. Because the real thing is that Joe can, I think, hopefully he'll be more comfortable and more relaxed because he was really skeptical of our ability to go out two people and, and play to 1,200 people. You know, he was really nervous about it. I mean, like freaked. And then every night it would go over and he'd think that something fluky happened. <laughs> really? <laughs> finally, if finally after, he yeah. finally believed it as he was working, did he? He's got the message now. After two years, okay. I think it sunk into him that it not only, and I, you know, I went, I don't like to say it was better because that's selfish of me, but there was definitely a magic that we had because we like a lot of the same music and, you know, we have some differences, but, 
but we also like, there's a lot of common ground there. And we were able to sing well together. I mean, personally, I know that I beat up Joe. I'm vegan. And I beat up Joe to stop doing dairy. And he got five notes back in his range that he didn't have. You know, whatever. Love you know, it. Take I it love for it. what it is. I love so, it. You know, so, you know, I was beating on Joe pretty hard for a while. So we took a break and now he's got a band and it's great. Mm. But we're, we're really close. And, and I feel great. And Joe's told me that and it made me feel really good because, you know, it was difficult. I would beaten up on him all the time. Well, I'm glad you to know. hear. I'm glad to hear that in the end, uh, the dairy did the did the job. Henry Gross, it's been a complete pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Paul. My pleasure anytime. East London Radio on Podcast Radio. To find out more, visit eastlondonradio.org.uk. Henry Gross talking about songwriting and his friendship with fellow musician Joe Brown. And my thanks also to Al Stewart. This is the East London Radio Private Lives Podcast. Thank you for listening. This is Paul Robinson. Do join me again at the same time next week. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you'd cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effie Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. Oh.